BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Wow, what a day. It looks like Trump is violating the Hatch Act all by himself. He doesn't need Kellyanne Conway to do it. The Democratic Party is not getting tickets to the event on the National Mall where Donald Trump is going to hold his Trump rally. Only the Republicans are passing out tickets to their big donors. This is bizarre. Andy Borowitz is so good. This is obviously the satire over at the New Yorker. Calling it incredibly exciting news, President Donald Trump revealed on Wednesday that his long-planned 4th of July parade in Washington will include a flyover by Russian Su-24 fighter planes. These are beautiful, gleaming Russian planes, Trump boasted to Tucker Carlson of Fox News. I'm the first American president who's had Russian planes flying over Washington. Yeah. And another little note I wanted to share with you. I don't know if uh, Pete Buttigieg's people were listening to my show, but uh, he has now rolled out. In fact, he tweeted it out, uh, a program he's called A New Call to Service. Now, he's not calling for a, essentially a draft, you know, where you can either choose the military or serve your country. But he wants to raise AmeriCorps from 75,000 to a quarter million people. Also, he wants to build new organizations, the Climate Corps, the Community Health Corps, and the Intergenerational Service Corps, all ways that Americans, particularly unemployed Americans, particularly Americans stuck in poverty, can serve their country and essentially have a job. So here's Pete Buttigieg moving in kind of an FDR direction, which I think is really cool. I did want to talk about, geez, there's just so much going on here. Fox News has just gone berserk with Colin Kaepernick and Nike. And Colin Kaepernick had warned Nike of this before they rolled out their Betsy Ross shoe, which now that Nike has pulled them, they're selling for thousands of dollars a piece on some of the secondary websites. But here's the story. Kaepernick said to Nike, you know, I'm your spokesperson, and I'm just telling you guys, if you roll out a shoe with a flag on it that's pre-Civil War, basically, that, you know, is during the slavery era in the United States, the right-wingers are going to latch onto this and use this as their symbol, and that shoe is going to become their shoe. And by having me as your spokesman, you've kind of, you know, said you're not going to go down that road. Well, Nike did it anyway. And then the blowback came, so they pulled the shoes, and now Ted Cruz, Marsha Blackburn, Josh Hawley, all Republicans are now tweeting, well, for example, Ted Cruz, it's a good thing Nike only wants to sell sneakers to people who hate the American flag, right? I mean, this is, you know, of course, this is the kind of Republican crapola that you get. But what this led to 
was this fascinating survey where they asked Americans about their sense of patriotism. This is a Gallup poll. Fewer than 50% of Americans are extremely proud of their country. Fewer than 50%. This is the second straight year, by the way, of sub-50% readings. 22% of Democrats are extremely proud, down 10 points in a single year. Republicans have remained extremely proud of their country, 76%, but that's 10 points below 2003. Dr. Wilfred McClay and this is the guy that Fox News is quoting. He says, patriotism is in decline because politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others have seized on isolated historical events, politicized them, and used them to divide Americans. At the same time, socialist textbooks and educators have deprived young Americans of a common sense and hopeful view of American history and the American project. Right. So then Fox News tweets this out. They tweet out this poll. This is the actual quote from Fox and Friends first. A new poll shows only 45% of American women in the U.S. are extremely proud to be American. This is the lowest amount ever recorded by this poll. What do you think is causing this decline? Fox asks this question. And it's hysterical, the responses. Linda Liu responds, this is all on Twitter, the liar in chief. Sweater Weather Underground responds, concentration camps. Realtor Sullivan replies on Twitter, really? You seriously don't know the answer, Fox? Why Americans are not proud of their country? Well, there's no hope for you. Bless your heart. Somebody from the South, I think. Here, Abby Rivera Aponte tweets, I believe in a democracy. I'm a patriot. But, and yes, that's a but, I will hang my flag on high the day the narcissistic rapist con man is out of office. Thanks for asking, Fox. Regina Stay Positive for Dems tweets back, are you kidding? Are you proud of children in cages? People not being able to afford drugs? Our closest allies being dissed while tyrants are fawned over? The ultra-rich are pitting the poor and middle class against each other and it's working? Protect the Truth tweets back at Fox News, probably the traitorous president who appears to be compromised by foreigners the way the founders feared. P.S. Thanks, Rupert Murdoch. WGO responds to Fox News' question, why are Americans not proud to be Americans anymore? I'd theorize it has something to do with a sociopathic, malignant, sexual predator narcissist running the White House and the world, spreading hate, racism, xenophobia, and greed while enriching himself and others. Another one says, I'm going to blame Obama's tan suit. But essentially the question, is it appropriate for American businesses to use pre-Civil War icons and symbols to sell products, which is what Nike tried to do. And, you know, and they're getting their butt kicked for it in some ways. And, and certainly they just handed this to Fox News and the snowflakes on the right who are aggrieved by anything that, that they think well, aggrieves them. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I guarantee you this is a major topic on all the snowflake shows over on the hard right. You know, Hannity and Libba and all these guys. What are your thoughts on it? Don't you think, I mean, you know, most Americans, and, and we've all seen, you know, these little bits that the late night shows do where they walk up to an American and say, uh, you know, can you identify Iran on a map or something like that or, you know. And our high school graduates are, tend to be profoundly unaware of international geography and international geopolitics. Don't you think that if young people knew that they might end up fighting in a war if Congress were to declare one or the president were to get us into one, that they would start paying attention to that in high school? and junior high school, and that high schools and junior high schools would start more aggressively teaching international geopolitics, 
how countries work, how wars work, the history of war, what's going on, where, who are our allies, who are not our allies, why are they our allies, why are they not our allies. You know, Donald Trump didn't even know what a liberal democracy was, which has got nothing to do with liberals or conservatives. Liberal democracy is the phrase that came out of the Enlightenment. John Locke, Thomas Jefferson. It's what this country is. We're a liberal democracy. Canada's a liberal democracy. Literally, Donald Trump didn't know that. He wasn't paying attention in high school. I mean, Trump's a little bit older than me, but I remember learning that in elementary school, frankly. But we wouldn't have people as stupid or as malinformed or uninformed as Donald Trump is, frankly, if I think if we had a, you know, I think Trump is actually the, the weird exception. But nonetheless, I think if we want to stop stupid wars, and if you have a better way to stop stupid wars than this, let me know. But I think to stop stupid wars, we need to return to the draft. Now, not the full-blown draft like we had during the Vietnam era, where it's like you go into the military or nothing. But now you've got Trump threatening wars in Iran and Venezuela, and there is not widespread public outrage about this. Why? Because fewer than 1%, I believe, maybe 2% at the most, of American families actually have a family member who's in the military. And that was certainly not the case in the 60s and 70s. It was certainly not the case in the 1940s during World War II. It certainly was not the case during World War I. It certainly wasn't the case during the Civil War. When you have a draft, suddenly the American populace says, oh, you really, you want to go to war with Iran? Think twice, buddy. You want to go to war with Venezuela? I mean, if our children had to participate in wars, or if the young people who are listening to me right now, if you're under, what, 26, I think, was the top of the draft age during the Vietnam War, would you be all that enthusiastic about Trump's saber-rattling? But instead, we now have an army that's made up either of people trying to escape poverty, people trying to figure out how to get to college, or people who have a long military tradition in their families. And, you know, I honor that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Except that we've got this kind of perverse incentive built into the military that the normal process of rising through the ranks, which also includes not only increasing your rank, but also your pay, and thus even your pension, that normal process of rising through the ranks is rather slow when there's not a war going on. But if there is a war going on and you can get deployed to a war zone, boom, you can rise up through the ranks very quickly. And so where is the incentive not to have wars? And the other consequence of this is that you end up with a military that's missing the diversity of the American people, made up largely of people either with a gung-ho military family background attitude or people who are trying to escape poverty or trying to at least get a GI Bill to go to college. And that doesn't necessarily give you the kind of diversity that you see in the military. And by diversity, I'm talking about diversity of opinion as much as you know, racial or national ancestry diversity. Diversity of politics. I mean, can you imagine a group of soldiers wearing Donald Trump badges stitched onto their uniforms if the military truly represented the American populace? I can't. Maybe I'm missing something, but I just can't. But the military is largely missing that diversity, which is why 18 years of continuous warfare has not become a huge political issue. Well, now, Deval Patrick and uh, General Stanley McChrystal, and I met McChrystal at a Talkers Magazine event, you know, the talk radio industry event, back, must have been 2005 or thereabouts, I think. It was, you know, fairly early on in the Afghanistan war, and he had just come back from Afghanistan, 
And I said, General, what's your take on what's going on there? And he said to me, he said, we will not be able to kill our way out of this war. And he made another point to somebody else who was talking to him that the war only took a month or so. The war was over. What's going on, what was then going on, it was an occupation. And that's what we've been doing for 18 years is low-level conflict in an occupation. It's what the British did with us. And, you know, generally speaking, people don't like their countries to be occupied. So anyhow, Deval Patrick and General McChrystal have proposed a national service program. Now, my proposal for a national service program would say, okay, after you get out of high school, you spend a year serving your country. You can spend that year in the military, or you can spend that year volunteering in a hospital, or joining, you know, Service for America, one of these national service programs, Habitat for Humanity, building houses for poor people, uh, low-income people. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways that you could volunteer. I would eliminate religious organizations from this because I don't think you want somebody volunteering at a megachurch to help raise money for the pastor's new $20 million jet. But outside of that, you know, nonprofit organizations or military service, your choice. And at the end of that year, you've got college all the way to an MD or PhD or trade school all the way to an apprenticeship and a good solid job in a union shop for free. In fact, maybe even we could do like Denmark and give people a small stipend to help pay for housing and books. In my humble opinion, it's time to institute a national service program. I would call it that. I wouldn't call it a draft, but I would make it mandatory. And, you know, you have your choice. You know, with free college or trade school at the end of this, there's also a psychological reason for this. One of the things that we know, I mean, this goes back to the days of Sigmund Freud. One of the things that we know is that there are these developmental stages that kids go through. One of the reasons that, you know, the terrible twos are as terrible as they are is that, you know, kids are starting to identify, starting to create an identity of themselves as being independent from, from mom. This is typically the time that they stop breastfeeding. It's the time they start actually eating solid food. It's the time that they start figuring out that they can manipulate the world rather than simply being part of the manipulated. That's the terrible twos. Then you see the next time that kids go through a major separation, tends to be around adolescence, around puberty. And that's the point at which they're actually shifting internally. They're shifting their, the groups with which they affiliate. Instead of boys always hanging out with boys, they start wanting to hang out with girls. And instead of girls always hanging out with girls, they start wanting to hang out with boys. And, and of course, everything in between, you know, without getting into a long discussion about, you know, gender and identity and all that. But you get the point. There's this second kind of shift that happens right around puberty, and it's hormone-driven, by and large. And then there's a third shift that happens, typically within five years of that second shift. And you see this in kids that are somewhere between 13 or 14, all the way up to 18 or 19. Somewhere during that period of time, they tend to get into conflict with their own parents. And parents will say, oh, yeah, I don't even know my kid anymore. You know, who, did, who is this monster who came living in my house? It looks just like my son or daughter, but uh, I don't know who this person is. Well, it turns out what's going on, and this is a normal and healthy developmental phase. This is when the child is going from being a member of and dependent on the family to having an independent identity out in the world, which is absolutely a necessary transitional stage to the next process where they might find a life partner or they go off and start a job or a career and they begin basically becoming an adult. And that third stage, that big stage, that developmental stage, 
is you know a major life transition we religiously and these are religions that go back thousands of years you know in catholicism it's confirmation in uh, judaism it's bar mitzvah bat mitzvah i'm sure that there's a parallel in uh, islam and in hinduism and in buddhism i'm just not familiar with the titles with the names and, and this is this rite of passage well for us in american culture the closest that we have to that rite of passage is graduating from high school which is really not that big a deal I mean, there was a time when it might have been a bigger deal, but really a year of national service where you actually leave home and you go off to some other part of the country and build houses or go off and join the Air Force or the Army for a year or whatever it may be, that's a healthy psychological thing. On the back end of that, when you're done with that, you're now an adult. And so there's a psychological reason for this, there's a cultural reason for this, there's a military reason for this, there's a political reason for this. It strengthens our country. We need volunteers, we need people helping out, and what a great time in your life to be out there learning carpentry, building houses, or learning what it's like inside a hospital as you're trying to decide what kind of career you want to go into, and you volunteer in a hospital. Oh, gee, I think I'll go into medicine. Or you volunteer you know, with NASA or something, and hey, I think I'll, you know, I'll go into the space program and be an astronaut, whatever it may be. I think this is a good idea. Now that said, I'm way past draft age and I'll be the first to acknowledge that. And I was pretty pissed off about the draft back when I was of draft age. But there was no non-military option back then and there was a war going on that we had no say in and we could not vote about. Now 18 year olds can vote. So what do you think? Particularly if you're a young person. Hey, do you know what the worst sound in the world is? It's your alarm clock if you haven't gotten enough sleep. And no matter how much you love that song on your phone, when it wakes you in the morning, you just want it to stop. Not only that, sleeping is, I mean, sleeping is such a personal thing. You know, like, I like my bed warm, Louise likes her bed cold. And it's just like, well, imagine this scenario. The surface temperature of your bed gradually adjusts to wake you up gently and naturally without the sound of the alarm. Imagine now waking up rested and alert. This is not science fiction. This is the new Pod by 8 Sleep. The Pod by 8 Sleep is a high-tech bed designed specifically to help you achieve optimal sleep fitness. And there's a reason why Time Magazine calls 8 Sleep one of the best inventions of the year. It combines dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to enhance your rest and your recovery. It learns your sleep habits and adjusts the temperature automatically. That means if you like your bed cool and your partner likes the bed warm, now you can have both at the same time in a crazy comfortable bed and no more alarm clocks. To celebrate Independence Day, get a free gravity cooling blanket plus free shipping with your pod purchase, a $300 value free. The offer ends Monday, July 8th. Visit 8sleep.com Tom. That's 8sleep.com Tom. E-I-G-H-T sleep dot com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Don in Evergreen, Colorado. What's on your mind today, Don? Yeah, Tom. Two more legs to the triad for uh, preventing the stupid wars. Yeah. The first, it used to be illegal to do war profiteering, or at least in theory. If we could make it so that if the U.S. was involved in a war, the people supplying the armaments could not make more than, say, a 2% profit. It was hard to find and carefully tracked. Then there'd be less incentive for them to do that. It's a little harder when you get into international arms sales, but 
at least we could take some of the profit motive out. Mm-hmm. The other leg, which might also help at the border, is student or cultural exchanges, where, you know, as over my career as an international airline pilot, I've been to six of the seven continents. And everywhere I go, people are people. They're just wonderful. It's just the governments that muck things up. Yeah. But if people could travel more and experience other cultures, don't go to try and change them or anything, but go to learn what they have from their culture you can incorporate to make our lives better and vice versa. People around the world, the more you have friends in other countries, the less you're likely to try and fight them. Yeah, and frankly, I wasn't thinking about international travel, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that could work just as well. So, And the last time, to the best of my knowledge, there was anything about war profiteering, Franklin Roosevelt famously said there will be no new war millionaires made from our current troubles. And Mm -hmm. he created a commission in Congress to look into this. And... This was during his third term. Harry Truman was not yet his vice president, as I recall. And my recollection, it was called the Truman Commission, that Harry Truman was put in charge of that commission. And they took these uh, defense contractors, and many of them, of course, were not defense contractors at the time. They were, you know, car makers and nylon hose makers and whatnot Mm -hmm. who were. But they really took them over the coals. I mean, they allowed profit, but not excessive profits. And I don't, to the best of my knowledge, that has not happened since. And this is what Dwight Eisenhower warned us about. And it's something we need to take very seriously. Don, excellent points both. Thank you so much for the call. Charles in Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, Charles, what's up? Good afternoon, Tom. I've been advocating to my friends for years what this government should do when high school graduates graduate high school. They need to spend two years doing some kind of civic duty, either two years in the military or two years volunteering. Yeah, I think one year might be enough, but, you know, I agree. Well, I'd say two years because it's going to take them one year to learn and to get up to speed. Yeah. And once they're up to speed, it's sad to see that talent at least utilize it for a year. Yeah. But two years does two things. On the political side, you would have some people going to the military that would genuinely like it. Mm-hmm. You would have some people going to the military to get a skill. You would have people volunteering to get a skill. Once you've done your two years, then your entire college education should be a free ride. Mm-hmm. But most important, what it does is it keeps fresh bodies rotating into the military. Yep. But on the economic side, what I see is it keeps young people for at least two years out of the job market, leaving those jobs for the breadwinners that have families. Well, that's an interesting point. And that and that's way, sort of like my suggestion that we lower the Social Security age from 65 to 60. That would also open up a lot of job opportunities for people in the middle. You know, and that way, uh, like I say, it would cut down on the, you know, on the unemployment. Yeah. Because give them two years to gain a skill and on top of that, at least in this current generation, at least some form of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. You know, the one year, two year thing is something that we could work out, you know, like having congressional hearings and having, you know, elections and stuff like that. But thank you, Charles. Yeah, you added an, another dimension to this. John in Los Angeles. John says you want to disagree with me. What's up? Yeah, that idea that you and the other callers talking about is stark raving mad. Okay, why? Okay, I'm a black man, okay, you know, liberated, 
so-called lily world, yeah, that would be nice, and it would work out that way. It would. That ain't the world we're living in. Sorry to everyone who's privileged, but once my people would get crushed because we always get crushed when it comes to those types of things. We got crushed in every draft. We got crushed everywhere. And why would I volunteer for a country that gunned me down in the streets? Yeah, I believe, John, that there are more minorities in the military right now than in the general population. I, they were forced in there because of financial reasons. That's my point. And, and we shouldn't have, you know, as the old phrase goes, people willing to be shot at for a sixpence. No, my point is, why don't you bring their taxes back up to 91% for the ones that's up way up there with their money, bring in a VAT tax, a wealth tax, and then uh, what they call a millionaire mediocre tax, and that way, school will be funded, and then deprivatize the military. All arms should be made by the military. Well, I agree with you on all of that. I just don't understand your objection to having a year of either military no, service or nonprofit service. Because when I was in high school, we had vocational school with our high school. So did I. I took shop okay, class. <laughs> and we got to go right back to that. I learned how to use a lathe. I, you know, I, I made a spoon rack for my dad. Exactly. I was junior high school, actually. And a plumber. Yeah. So there you, there that needs to go back into the high school. And in fact, high school needs to be extended two years. Why? Yeah. Because those two years could be spent on figuring out what you want to do in life and get into proper education. Well, this is, John, my public service thing. I mean, if you've got a year that you can volunteer to, to help build houses for poor people or you can volunteer to go somewhere else in the world with this, what's the service corps that we've got? The Peace Corps. People would see the world. How is that a bad thing, John? Plus, it's all paid for with tax dollars. First off, what I'm saying is the public service part, as far as, I'm not talking about the military, screw that, okay? You find enough people that want to fight on their own. Just take a look at the United States streets. As a public, yeah, every child should get some form of, I wouldn't say public service, I would say some type of pre-training before you get into a college. Yeah, I'm with you on I think pretty much everything except your thing on the draft, and I, we'll just have to agree to disagree on that. John, thanks a lot for the call. Barbara in Redondo Beach, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Barbara, what's up? Hi, this is so exciting to talk to you. I love everything you've done this morning. I, I really agree with everyone. The draft for 18-year-olds, all 18-year-olds, uh, men and women, and the choice for military service or rebuilding. We could rebuild the war zones that we've destroyed. We could rebuild our solar infrastructure. I love the idea of the free college, and we've earned it with those two years. Mm -hmm. And we could also provide aid at the borders. I mean, this is a fabulous idea, and I really thank you for it. Okay. Thank you very much, Barbara. It's great to hear from mm -hmm. you, and thanks again for listening. William in Woodland Hills, California, watching Free Speech TV. Hey, William, what's on your mind? Pretty good, Tom. How are you doing? Good. My older brother's an optimologist. I'm a developer. Back in 2014, when the big hoopla was going on with the Affordable Care Act, we came up with this program, and based on uh, Jimmy Carter's program, we love Jimmy Carter, by the way, Habitat for Humanity. Well, we were doing a feasibility study on Habitat for Health. 
like basically the same concept. Put a medical student, you want to go to medical school? We'll put you through medical school. After you're done, we want two years of service, particularly grow a community clinic or urgent care or hospital or whatever the case is. Yeah. But you're going to do pretty much. You know, the University of Vermont does that. You can get a massive discount. I don't know if it's a full ride or not, but you can get a massive discount on your tuition at the University of Vermont Medical School if after you get your degree you commit to a certain period of time, and I'm sorry, I don't remember how long it is, serving the poorest communities in Vermont. Because basically, Vermont has two towns, maybe three towns that are kind of wealthy towns, but most of the state is very, very poor. The rural part of Vermont is deeply poor. I'm reminded, I'm sure you probably recall this, you're around the same age as my older brother, but I recall when we were here in uh, junior high, and he was in the junior achievement program, and Mm -hmm. motivated us, literally, and I'm like, whatever happened to that thing? We kind of got our business acumen, if you will, cutting our teeth in, in that program back in the and Yep, it was, that was the kind by. of the business version of 4-H for farmers. <laughs> there you go, absolutely. Since you brought it up, my mother was one of the people that taught 4-H. Yeah, and she 4-H has gone away because all the family farms have been wiped out by these giant corporate behemoths coming in during the Reagan years. This is why Willie Nelson was doing farm aid, you know, basically right. regulating prices of farm commodities to the point that the farmers would go bankrupt, then they'd buy up their farms, and then when they had all the farms in a particular state basically owned, then they'd jack the prices back up and make profits. I agree with you. Completely. Tom, it's a pleasure talking to you. I'll let you take some more calls. Okay. Thank you very much, William. Good to hear from you. Steve in Harper, Washington. Hey, Steve. Thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Hi. I would like to see a satirical comedy routine uh, recognizing the draft dodgers from the Vietnam War era. I graduated high school in 1965, and Mm -hmm. going to Vietnam was central to my planning, my life. And I was successful through student deferments and employment deferments. That's how I avoided going to Vietnam. Uh And at the time, I always thought that avoiding military service would be a great detriment to the political future of anyone. Mm -hmm. But it turned out not to be so. Yeah, look at the draft dodger-in-chief right now who wants to have his military parade. Yep. Yeah. uh, So that's my brief comment on today's world and Trump's 4th of July celebration. Okay. Great story. Steve, thank you very much, and thanks for listening to KBCS. It's the Tom Hartman Program, the place where despair is not an option. We've got to get to work, my friends. You know, now that uh, Louise and I are pushing our late 60s here, uh, under eye puffiness and bags under the eyes and all that kind of stuff is kind of something you start noticing, right? And uh, for a couple of years, I people, you know, people have recommended everything from hemorrhoid cream to tea bags, but frankly, none of them work. Uh, what really works well, and what Louise absolutely loves this stuff, is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet or wrinkles or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. 
See for yourself and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under-eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TriPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm, it really works. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Amazing. We have a TV monitor here in the studio, so I can just kind of look over every now and then and see if Trump declared war on somebody. <laughs> and, and I just noticed that Ken Cuccinelli was on MSNBC, so I turned it off. God, he is the last person I want to hear from ever again in my life. He's one of the most destructive and despicable human beings that you know I have never met. Joy in Chicago. Hey, Joy, what's on your mind today? Oh, hey, Tom. First, I want to say I absolutely love your show. been listening to it for a while. First time caller. A little nervous, but I agree with most everything you said. But when you said drafting 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds into the military, I'm a counselor. I work with PTSD. The human brain doesn't fully develop until we're 25 years old. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has some information out there, research that shows that when the human brain, when it's developing and it gets exposed to trauma, like a war, that it actually changes the physical characteristics of the brain. Yes. And that kind of damage, <laughs> I think, would be horrible to put on Earth. I agree. But my point, Joy, was that if every family in America knew that their kids had to, after high school, now I'm not saying a military draft, I'm saying a year of public service that can either take the form of joining the military or it can take the form of working in a hospital, building homes for Habitat for Humanity, joining the Peace Corps, you know, going overseas and helping out, rebuilding America, planting trees, whatever it may be. But if every family in America knew that there was a chance that one of their kids might end up joining the military because they had to do that year of military service, I don't think that we would have all these wars. Well, I think that's true, but I also think we still have a lot of corruption, and the chances of the people who would start those wars making sure that their kids have never had to do that, and the low-income people who don't have a lot of power would be the ones that get pulled into military. Well, but they would have a choice. They could be pulled into working in a hospital instead. So If uh, there's an opening. Yeah. Well, you would want to make sure that there were plenty of openings. I am opposed to compulsory military service, period. I opposed the draft back in the late 60s, early 70s, when I was of draft age. I opposed a military draft to this day, unless we're in a World War II kind of situation where you just you can't get out of it. And I agree with your points about development. But I see this as, number one, a way to provide a transition to adulthood, essentially, you know, a, a rite of passage for young people something that is developmentally important and that does happen you're right the full orbital frontal area of the brain and all that yeah the inhibitory parts i'm mangling my language here the parts of the brain that control inhibition don't really fully develop until your early 20s but that you know fewer than two percent of us have family in the military and therefore we're having no serious discussion in this country about the consequences of war trump can threaten war with venezuela he can threaten war with iran and we're all like yeah yeah so what but if people thought, you know, my kid might end up there, I think even without a compulsory draft, just as national military service, I think that the odds of that are much less likely, which means that we'd have much less trauma for everybody. But your point is well taken, Joy, and thank you for calling and making it. I appreciate it. 
Leslie in Central Square, New York. Hey, Leslie, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, Tom. I actually still kind of agree with the draft, but I think that high school students ought to be taught when the military comes in what war you're in and who invaded who and at least four or five wars back with at least two or three hours of education on whether we're going to war for the people or for the corporations. Leslie, don't you think that if students knew that when they graduated from high school, they had to make a choice between going into the military or, you know, volunteering in a hospital or building houses or something, that they would start having a real serious interest in international geopolitics, and that would create the demand that would produce the high school and junior high school courses about, you know, the history of the war, of warfare, the history of the military, current civics, where we're at right now, what, you know, the geography of the world, where there are wars, where there's potential hotspots, who are our friends, who are our enemies. Might that not cause them to get engaged? I think you're right, Tom. But I think there should be some specifics which don't take long to do. The facts, whether we invade countries or they invade us, is a big thing. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And again, should be studied. Leslie, thank you for the call. Tim in Burlington, Vermont. Hey, Tim, what's up? Hey, Tom. I wanted to talk about the economy a little bit and, of course, what you're talking about. As far as the wars, I am a veteran, and I tell most people now that they better think about what they're doing before they sign up. I really go along with what you're saying as far as the getting people involved. Yeah. Something different than just going over and fighting. I think the big thing on the economy and war is history. Now, getting into the history and the economy is in 1919, what the heck was going on then? We get the same thing that is going on now. You're talking about 1929, actually. going on. Yeah. Yes. The same thing was going on in 1919. What the heck's going on? Yeah, 1929 is the year you're thinking of. That's the year the stock market fell apart. No, no. Let's go back to 1919. Okay, what happened what in 1919 on that I, I don't know about? Tell me. I believe that was Hoovervilles were being created. No, uh, Herbert Hoover was elected president in 1928, and in 1929 the stock market f fell apart. And by 1930 and 31 and 32, you had the Hoovervilles, the widespread poverty, 35% unemployment. And then in the election of 32, Franklin Roosevelt was elected and he was sworn into office March 4th, 1933. Okay, so you being a professor, tell me what was going on in 1919. Well, that's what I don't know. That's why I don't know why you keep mentioning 1919. Oh, oh, I'll oh. tell you what was going on in 1920, because it was 1920. Actually, in 1919, the top tax rate was 91%. I think Woodrow Wilson was still president. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. Warren Harding ran for election in 1920 and got elected in, the, in November of 1920, took office in March of 1921. And uh, he was the, you know, a Republican. Wilson had been a Democrat, and he immediately lowered the top tax rate down to 25%, which kicked off the roaring 20s, which kicked off, you know, which led up to the great crash. And that's where we're at right now, Tim. Thanks a lot for the call. Lucretia in Los Angeles. Hey, Lucretia, what's up? The draft. As soon as I heard the term, it frightened me. Sure. Coming from personal experience, my uncle, man of color, he was one of the types that 
participated in the Watts riot. He was an activist type, mm-hmm. but he was drafted to go to Vietnam War, and when he got back, he was ruined. Oh, I had several you friends. Know, I had two it, friends it, it, who died in Vietnam and a couple of others who, well, one of them was a homeless person now. I mean, badly damaged by it. People that I went to high school with. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And these were not people of color, but the Vietnam War was a horribly wounding experience for this entire country. Yes. So it's like the the gentleman that called earlier, I could understand the frustration. I think the term draft in itself, you know, like I said, once I heard that, I was like, (gasps) because when the draft was removed, it was one of those sighs of relief. Oh, I remember it well. Yeah. But if we make it a year of national service with a military option or a nonprofit option, and the nonprofit option could be either domestic or even international if you want to join the Peace Corps, that seems like a whole different thing, or not? Well, it seems that way, but the fear comes on my end on how, you know, well-placed intentions are often twisted yeah. to fall back on impoverished people and people of color to be used as a sacrificial resource. Right. And, you know, not having the money, like a lot of individuals who bought themselves out, paid to stay out of the wars, paid to, were able to pay to stay out of the draft. And even the idea of, even if we had the money, the technicality that was good for the goose is not necessarily good for the gander. Yeah, George so W. Bush was an example of that. In, up in that. Yeah, you know, I get that. And to a large extent, that's what we've got right now. I mean, a good chunk of our current military, and I don't know that anybody's compiled good statistics on this, but a good chunk of our current military are people who are there trying to escape poverty. So A, let's eliminate poverty in the United States. And, yeah. and, and B, a national service program that could or could not, you know, doesn't have to include military service, but that's one of the options. It just seems like a healthy thing. I, you know, I lived in Germany for a year, 86, 87. And I don't know if Germany is still doing this, but back then you had to serve a year after you left high school. And I was working part-time with this nonprofit that ran a hospital. And most of the people who were, in quotes, working there, and they drew a small paycheck too, in addition to room and board, they were there rather than going into the military. This was their year of military service. They were all 18, 19 years old. And, you know, great kids who had come from all over Germany to this little town, the Frankenwald, in the middle of nowhere, discovering new cultures and new people. So, but I get your concern. Lucretia, thank you for the call. Daniel in Manchester, New Hampshire. Hey, Daniel, what's on your mind? A friend of mine and I have been talking about copying. I think Israel has a two-year mandatory draft. Yeah, I don't know how long it is. I know they have it. Yeah, and I actually was not in the military, though he was, and I suggested maybe kind of what you said, making it more like a public service as well. Right. I'm a firefighter, and had I learned that, you know, I could enjoy a career in the fire department instead of going to college, I could have been a firefighter from the age of 18 as opposed to starting at 31. Hmm. But also, wouldn't it be nice to see potentially some of our military actually become more of a humanitarian arm? We've spent so long destroying economies and bombing countries, why don't we take some of our army engineers and go over and rebuild hospitals, rebuild schools, and take these 18, 19, 20-year-olds, let them experience another culture, let them experience something that they might not see, you know, and I'll come from my perspective, in Central South Carolina and Western North Carolina, send a young me to Iraq, Afghanistan, not to kill anybody, 
not to spread democracy, but to help them, you know, yeah. develop their, their health care system, develop their educational system. Well, and that does spread democracy and that America used to be viewed as the country that was the example for the world and also the country that helped the world. And now we're embarrassed by this orange monster, not just him. I mean, this has been going on since Reagan. Now we're the country that, that, that yells and pounds its chest and says, screw the world. And it's terrible. Daniel, excellent points all. Thank you for calling and making them. Susan in Phoenix. Hey, Susan, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I actually had two points on the military thing. The one is, I've been saying this for a while, that we're investing so much money into the military that we need to somehow increase our programmers. I was a website person for 20 years in my own business, and I always tried to hire Americans. Unfortunately, they're very arrogant because there's so few of them, and they're expensive. I ended up using programmers from India. We need to increase our programmers because that's where we're being attacked. Mm. But the others, I think your two-year idea or your year idea is awesome. Israel does do it, and women have to serve as well. They're all given guns for two years and taught how to use them and respect them. That might be something. Excellent point. Thank you very much for calling and making it. Paul in Lasem, is it Sem or Semi, California? Lucerne, California. Oh, Lucerne. Okay, I'm sorry. What's up? I'd like to agree with you, but I think it should be a two-year mandatory service. And that one young lady earlier talked about the brain not developing until you're 25. Well, Mm -hmm. that's kind of right. We need the two-year thing. Get out of school when you're 18. You still don't know what you want to do. It doesn't have to be military. It could be like a job score thing. Or we're about to have a really lot of old people. The baby boomers are now in their 70s and 80s. They're going to get nothing but older. They're going to need somebody to be a companion to them so we can have a national companion program set up like we do for big brothers and big sisters. We do the same thing for them. Elder care. It would give them a sense of, yeah, I did it. I went through school. I did my two years. I'm 20 years old. I'm ready to face the world. Let's do this. Yeah. I think it would help them. Okay. And if you look at the countries that do it, they're all way better off than we are. Yeah. Germany has a version of this, and a lot of European countries do. Yes, they do. All right. And look at their society. It's educated. It's more inclusive. They don't have the violent problem we do. And by the way, Israel does have a violence problem. Palestinians are being gunned down by Jewish citizens on a daily basis. It's horrible. Yes, and I am regularly critical of the right-wing government and their position on all this in Israel and their unwillingness to even now talk about a two-state solution. And, you know, what's going on in Gaza is an abomination. I'm with you on all that. But I get what you're saying, Paul. Paul, thanks a lot for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? 
Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Jack in Culver City, California. Hey, Jack, what's on your mind? Yes, I was drafted in 65 after I received an engineering degree. Mm-hmm. I believe that if you disrupt a person's education, many times you'll disrail it. So maybe after education, you serve your... Well, increasingly these days, people are talking about a gap year. I mean, it's kind of like the hot new thing is to take a year off after high school and find yourself before you go to college, particularly among, you know, upper middle class white kids. This would just be institutionalizing a version of that, don't you think? I went right from high school to junior college mm-hmm. to UCLA yeah. in engineering, which is not an easy subject. Right, but you still could have gone into engineering if you had spent a year in the military, couldn't you? Or yeah. a year building houses with Jimmy Carter. Many times they find that life easier than education. They were making a little bit of money, so they disrupt their education. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Bottom line is you're saying we really need to, to give people... I get it. Okay, we, yeah, okay. Thanks a lot for the call, Jack. Really, I guess the good news is Jack and I are disagreeing about how it should be done, not whether it should be done. And I would like to see that as a kind of a staging for college. But anyhow, we'll be back. Luke Vargas is going to be with us in just a minute. Stick around. Tom Hartman here with you. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. And on the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, joining us from New York, Luke Vargas. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. And Luke, two things. Number one, uh, since Iran exceeded the threshold from, you know, basically the Iran deal, the JCPOA or whatever it is. And number two is that Mike Pence's plane turned around in midair and went back to D.C. And there's a lot of speculation about why. It was not you know, anything wrong with the airplane. Might it be that the Trump administration is planning on doing something violent that has to do with this? I'd say on the Pence development, there's been a lot of rumors swirling around, and I think it's worth separating what's been confirmed from what hasn't. So, yes, the vice president was going to do a campaign event in New Hampshire, which was abruptly canceled, his office saying, quote, something came up. A lot of other people have been pointing to developments in Russia, where a very advanced mini nuclear submarine, which the U.S. believes is probably one of the more secretive elements of the Russian Navy, which was rumored to be used for snipping underwater telecom cables, caught fire, and many in the crew died, prompting Vladimir Putin to cancel his schedule. So there was some speculation it could be something related to Russian security, but we don't know at this point. It's probably hasty to speculate too much on what Pence's change of plans is about. On the Iran side, I think the focus now is turning to three European countries who I think in between them hold the keys to the future of the Iran deal in their hands, which would be Germany, France, 
and the United Kingdom. That's because we're in a weird stage of this whole Iranian nuclear diplomacy where it's in the hands of the remaining signatories of the deal, the U.S., importantly, not one of those countries, to decide whether they take this IAEA-confirmed sort of technical nuclear-related violation on Iran's part, holding on to a little bit too much low-enriched uranium, not weapons-grade fuel. We don't have any indications yet. Iran is in any way making a move towards a nuclear weapon, but they are holding on to a a small amount too much of this low-enriched uranium, which is a technical violation of the deal. So if you, the way this agreement was written, If Iran thinks it's not being treated fairly, they can appeal to have a little group formed to study the alleged violation by the other countries and vice versa. So in this case, it would be up to China, Russia, the U.K., France or Germany to lodge a complaint that Iran has violated the deal, at which point a 65-day timer would start where various other parties of the deal and the IAEA would start meeting together to assess what had happened and how to respond. Once that process is set in motion... It's actually very easy to see how this deal would collapse because uh, there is, at the very end of that 65-day countdown, a U.N. Security Council vote that would occur. And it is carefully written, language by the Obama administration, that any country on the U.N. Security Council could veto the continued sanctions relief for Iran. That's really particular phrasing. It's not that, hey, do you want to snap back sanctions yay or nay, it's do you want to continue to give Iran the benefits that it was supposed to be given by the terms of the nuclear deal? But have they now lost a lot of those benefits anyway because of the U.S. sanctions? They definitely have, but were the U.S. to veto that continued relief, it would instantly snap back all of the international sanctions, which are not currently in effect. It's it's U.S. unilateral sanctions and sort of the strong arming that we've done to deny Iranian oil a place in global markets. So those are existing and they are severe, and it's severe enough to lead us to where we are now. But were we to get this dispute resolution timer of 65 days going, it's all but certain that at the end of that, the U.S. would basically snap back all of the international sanctions on Iran with a Security Council veto. But to take it back to where we are right now, you still need one of these existing parties of the deal, the U.S. not a part of it, to agree that that's the path we want to go down. And with such a clear outcome at the end of that period, I think there's justifiable, understandable hesitancy, specifically on the part of France, the U.K., and Germany. I don't see a scenario where Russia or China scuttles the nuclear deal by referring Iran's violations to the U.N. Security Council. But, you know, will France, the U.K., and Germany do that is a big question. You know, France and the United Kingdom, both permanent members of the Security Council, were very, very vocal last week at the U.N. in New York saying, we consider the Iran nuclear deal to be the absolute cornerstone of international diplomacy, and they do not want to take us down a path where that gets sunk by one of their actions. But watching whether the U.S. puts pressure on those European allies, especially if Iran starts to do what they've now been threatening, which is to possibly start enriching uranium above this three and two-thirds percent enrichment level, it's going to be increasingly difficult for those European countries, as much as they wish the Iran deal could still be fully in effect, for them to sort of not acknowledge that there is a nuclear-related violation here. So it really comes down to those three countries, I think. Right. And it also raises the question, what happens if Boris Johnson, who's Trump's best buddy, becomes the uh, prime minister of the UK? Right. There is the vote. It's difficult to see Germany or France, maybe, in the current political context being the ones to do that, especially with the German foreign minister now looking to become a huge figure in European Union politics after some last, you know, sort of breaking news on the European leadership front. I don't think Germany or France will be the one to scuttle this. You're right to, I think, point our focus over to the United Kingdom. Yeah. 
And meanwhile, there's uh, some climate change news, new research in Nature magazine, fossil fuel power plants. You want to lay it all out? Yeah, very briefly, it's been about a decade since scientists looked at committed emissions from fossil fuel infrastructure, which is going around the world, telling up all of the emissions that we can basically build into our our emissions diet for the next half century. And unfortunately, the big expansion of coal power plants in China and India in the last decade and a half, those plants are going to stay open for 30, 40 more years unless they get decommissioned early. And that's kind of the new front line, I think, for emissions activists is, you know, we've already change the economics so building these fossil plants doesn't really make much sense compared to renewables when do we cross that price threshold where maintaining coal infrastructure is just not viable we're close but not there yet remarkable luke vargas with talk media news you can follow him on twitter at the courier luke thanks a lot thank you great talking with you Tom Hartman here with you. And just to recap this very, very quickly, what I'm suggesting, and by the way, this is there's now a movement starting for this. Deval Patrick, you know, a Democrat, and uh, General McChrystal, Stanley McChrystal, who I don't know that he's political at all. He's retired now from the military, was our commander in Afghanistan for a while. These two guys have gotten together and said, we need a year of national service or a national service program for kids who graduate high school and can spend some time just, you know, kind of catching up. I think that this is a rite of passage thing. I think it's healthy. I think that filling our military. So just to recap, number one, I'm not talking about a pure military draft. In fact, I think the majority of people who would go into this would probably go into the nonprofit sector. It could be the Peace Corps. It could be something domestic. Number one, this helps our country. It helps our kids. I lived in Germany for a year where they had this program in place. I worked in a hospital there, or it was attached to the facility, you know, to this nonprofit that I was working with, Salem International. Uh, SalemInternational.org is their website if you want to know more about it. We had a natural health clinic there, and there were a bunch of young people in their, eight, you know, 18-year-olds who, rather than go to the military, they spent their year working there, helping, you know, helping people and learning about medicine and all kinds of stuff, and it seemed to work out quite well. So, anyhow, Lynn in the Los Angeles area. Hey, Lynn, what's on your mind? Same thing. I was a college advisor and a career advisor for uh, 10 years in the inner city, south central areas in L.A., witnessing students of uh, low income of color being uh, recruited by military uh, recruiters who got money for each signature and application that they successfully acquired. Meanwhile, I would go into classrooms and ask the seniors and the juniors, hey, what do you guys plan to do with your future? Half said, I don't know, consistently. Mm. And when they go to community colleges to find themselves, they rack up student debt, they tend not to graduate on time, and they get lost. Sometimes they drop out without degrees. So I used to also recruit for a program called City Year, where they gained experience in the world as a volunteer in schools, and they got leadership training, they got a stipend, they got transportation, and these programs are very positive for students who, like 50% or more, who have no idea what they want to do with their future. So I highly endorse what you propose. And I don't think it disadvantages the low-income students. On the other side, I think it, on the other hand, gives them the uh, knowledge that they need and the, you know, the self-awareness as well as awareness of where they want to go in life, 
without racking up student debt or going into this, the military thinking it's a good deal and finding out later that they made a mistake. Well, and if we made it universal, this is this gets back to my point about diversity. And again, I wasn't talking so much about racial or religious diversity as economic and status, essentially, diversity, mm-hmm. that wealthy white kids growing up who grow up in this weird little bubble and never even encounter people of color, uh, during that year, they would be side by side with a whole spectrum, and not just people of color, even poor white people. They would have, yeah. they would, they would encounter this whole spectrum of humanity that they might otherwise, you know, they'd otherwise they'd be like Brett Kavanaugh, you know, privileged kid yeah. through through his entire life, you know, never even encounter. He probably doesn't even know what poverty looks like. That's right. I totally agree. Yeah, Lynn, thank you very much for the call. Barbara in Bradenton, Florida. Hey, Barbara, what's Hi, on your mind? Hi, I'm such a fan. Thrilled I got through. Um, I wanted to agree with you about the public service because I worked for, like, Neighborhood Youth Corps back when I was a kid in New York, and it was it teaches you the work ethic and kind of gets you in the, in the groove to, to become a working adult. And I think it would be great for the country. And also I wanted to... Talk about the Democratic field of candidates and how when I watched the debates of the Republicans way back when, they were all a bunch of real idiots. And watching the Democrats, they're like all great. Yeah. Hoping it gets across how great the party is. And you can't emphasize enough what an existential threat Trump is to our democracy. And I'm hoping that whoever does win the nomination will harp on that and, and educate Americans about the importance of free and fair elections, and and we've also got to fight that battle, because if they yeah. don't count our votes, it doesn't matter what we do, so we've got to get to the bottom of all this corruption of the Republicans. Yeah, I agree. It's not just Trump. It's Trumpism, and it's not just Trumpism. It's the Republican Party's, uh, you know, embrace of it all. Yeah. Excellent points all. Barbara, okay. thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Great. Bye. Yeah, great talking with you. Mark in uh, San Diego. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Uh, hey, Dom. I like this discussion about compulsory service. I, I kind of tend to disagree with you a little bit. I think that the military should be compulsory. You and I both uh, were during the Vietnam War era, and honestly, if they didn't have a military draft during that time, do you really think that there would have been these vehement anti-war protests? I'm sure there would have been some, but I don't think it would have been to the extent if there hadn't been a military draft where everybody's son and daughter had some skin in the game. I agree with you, Mark. The reason why I'm not suggesting a, an all-out military draft, there were exceptions back then. You could sign up as a conscientious objector, which is very, very difficult to do. And you pretty much had to have you know, a whole family religious history to prove it. But the reason why I'm not suggesting that right now is I just don't think it's politically feasible. You're probably right about that. But honestly, when somebody's son or daughter has a possibility of serving, I'll bet you this flag-waving and drumbeat for war would subside substantially because even if you could choose one or the other it would be a possibility and and in fact you could calibrate it so that during times of war the government might be able to say okay a certain percentage you know instead of only 30 percent of people going into the military we're going to have to push that up to 40 which means that there's going to be a certain percentage of people and i have no idea how you'd parse this out and sort it out and figure out who was and wasn't but a certain number of people are going to have to go into the military whether they want to or not We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. 
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 